You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. My name is Randy Bolander, and I'm here every week, mostly. Well, I think I am. Yeah, pretty much every week. Good to have you with us as we dive into part two of a series that I started teaching two weeks ago. Uh, We took a week and invested it into Joel Richardson and what was going on in Afghanistan, which was very timely. But uh, back to where we were talking about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and the discussion that he had with his wife, who didn't like it because that is not how daddy would have done it. Everybody's got issues. Stay with us. Last week, I talked about how salvation is simple. Everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. And we talked a little bit about the interesting interactions that will make for when we get to heaven. When we look around and we go, how did they make it? And we realize it was by the same grace that we made it. And there will be people that are as surprised to see you as you are to see other people. And I hate to use the phrase, just saved. But many are kind of just barely saved. It's a miracle in itself, but they become saved, but they never really walk into the fullness of it. And it's a little bit like flying to JFK, getting off the airplane, having a bagel on the concourse, getting back on the plane, coming back home, and somebody says, where were you? I went to New York. Technically, yeah, you went to New York, but you really didn't have the full experience of what it means to be in New York. Beyond salvation, there is more to know and more to experience and walk in in God. And those experiences and that growth and that fuller understanding comes with our pursuit of Him and our pursuit of our walk with the Holy Spirit. Salvation is printed like, presented to us like a gift, but the depths of how what we experience in it is something that we press into for ourselves. Proverbs 25, verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, or to conceal things. Think about it. Conceal things. What is he concealing? He is concealing the deep things that he only tells his friends. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. The glory of God to conceal things, glory of kings to search them out. Say, well, how does that apply to me? I am a stay-at-home mom, or I'm in the workplace, or even I'm a pastor, and you're saying this is the work of kings. Because when you were saved, you became a son or a daughter, but there is also a governmental piece of authority that comes on your life. And you may walk in it in this lifetime, or you may walk in it in the next lifetime. But scripturally, you step into an authority that goes beyond just being a son or a daughter. Revelation, much of Revelation, there are pieces of poetry and pieces of songs. And Revelation 5, 9 features a a piece of a song, actually. I'm going to pull out the liner notes and look at that for just a minute. Revelation 5, 9 says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Your destiny as a believer is to rule and reign on the earth under the leadership 
of Jesus. In this lifetime and in the lifetime to come. Everything we do in this lifetime is preparation for the lifetime to come when we will rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. In a sense, your 60, 70, 80, 100 years on this earth are an internship for that season to come. And people say, well, if it's all for the age to come, then does this life really matter? No, if it's all for the age to come, this life matters more. And somehow, as believers, we know there are two realms of authority. There's a governmental or the kingly realm. There's also the priestly realm or the realm before the Lord. And for some reason, we try and force our method of government onto the kingdom rather than look at the kingdom of God and have it affect our government. Jesus did not die to bring earthly style of leadership to his church, but to bring the values and the methods of the kingdom to how we govern ourselves and how we influence the world. This may strike you as odd. I believe in the separation of church and state when it's talking about a local congregation. I, I think actually a local congregation being able to manipulate the government in an area, probably not a good thing. Because you never know what congregation that's going to be or what church that's going to be. And in vast swaths of the United States right now, that might not even be a Christian influence. But the kingdom of heaven, that stands far above government. That overrules and supersedes government. Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he meant is his rule and his reign is to be a force on the earth through our deeds and our courage and our humility and how we follow him. We are, in a sense, right now, kings on earth in preparation for being kings in the next realm under his leadership. He is better than we know he is, and he invites us as kings, as that verse in Proverbs says, to search those things out and to go deep with him. Those of you who have been married for a long time, by a long time, I mean like 25 years plus, okay? We've been married 30-some years. I like those of you that have been married 15 years, I'm just telling you, you're just getting started. You really are. I know it feels like it's been, some days it feels like a long time. It's really not that long. But the longer you are married with someone, the more dear whatever attracted you to them becomes. Like, the more you realize over time, wow, I thought that was good. That's really much better. I tell young couples when they get married, this is going to be harder than you know, and it's going to be better than you know. Because time spent with people reveals more and more and more of the depth of their goodness. And that is true with the Lord. Time spent in his presence reflects his goodness and his value. This, if it's true of broken people, because you married a broken person, if you're married, if you, if you don't know that, you've not been married long, but they're busted. All right, they got some quirks. But if that's true of broken people, that over time you understand them better and you love them even more, how much more so of a perfect being? We learn how good he is as we spend time in his presence. And so what I want to talk about this morning is this idea of being presence people, people who focus on hosting the presence of God. Now, I don't plagiarize. I do borrow. And I have completely stolen this term, presence people, from my friend Lyle Miller in Nashville. Who he stole it from, I don't know. I don't much care. I just want to you know, distance myself from the actual theft. I didn't, I didn't make this up. This idea of people who host 
the presence of God. Last week, we spoke specifically about the loss of the presence of God from among the people of God. The land was full of people who were, in essence, Jewish in name, but not even so much in culture and certainly not in worship anymore. And they decided to go and and recapture the Ark of the Philistines, which had been taken in battle. And in a good faith effort to go and bring the Ark of the Covenant back, They did so with such a casual approach that it did not go well. And even though they longed sincerely to be presence people, not just Jews in name, but Jews in heart, with the honor and privilege of having the presence of God with them, even though they did that, they did it in such a way that it did not go well. They wanted to be people who were living in the blessing of whatever was happening at Obed-Edom's house. Because they left the ark at Obed-Edom's house, and they looked back and they said, wow, he's being blessed. And they said, I want to live in that life. I'm telling you, there are still people like this, and we can be them. So I want to give you six characteristics of people who are presence people. Six characteristics, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to spend way more time on number one than on the other four. So if we get to the end of number one, and you're good at math, and you're projecting how long this is going to take, it's really not going to take that long. But one will spend more time. Some of you are thinking, I never thought of doing that. Now you've thought of doing that. But all points are not created equal, and this first one's longer. Number one, presence people believe that he is worth going after. They believe that God is worth going after. Turn to 2 Samuel 6, 12. And it was told King David. Last week, we, we read the story primarily out of uh, 1 Corinthians, but uh, 1 Chronicles, but there's a parallel passage in, in Samuel, so that's why we're in Samuel. 2 Samuel 6.12, it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now remember, they tried this last week or two weeks ago. We talked about this. It did not go well. They put the ark on a cart. They were told not to put it on a cart. They hit a pothole. It goes to fall. Somebody goes to steady it. That guy dies. It was a difficult day because they didn't do it the way they were supposed to do. So they leave the ark at Obed-Edom's house because they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. They know they'd made mistakes. They just want to move on. And it derailed them significantly. Sometimes your disobedience can can derail you longer than God intends it to. When you're disobedient, when something goes wrong, something goes bad, you know, oh, it's because I did it this way and that didn't go well. It's not time for you to abandon his presence like they did. It's time for you to repent and get it right. But they did this, and they leave it in Obed-Edom's house, and they walk away from it. Meanwhile, Obed-Edom's house was blessed because of the presence of God. Good things happened there. You know, just a side note, we want his presence because we love him. But let's be honest, in his presence, life's a whole lot better. Like, it's easier Even the hard things that we go through, there is a grace to go through. We want to host him because it changes how we live. And that's what happened in Obed-Edom's house. David and his people continued on home, and they began to hear how things were going well back at Obed-Edom's house. They looked around and they said, we got to go back and get that thing. Let's go back and get the ark. Presence people believe that God is worth going after. Now, it's not without risk. If you remember, last time they moved the ark, it did not go well. Okay, they are one man short from last time because it did not go well. How do we determine which risks that we take and which ones we avoid? 
Some people are afraid of everything. We determine our risks based on the reward that is offered. And you might think it sounds hard or wonder if, you know, do I really want to risk following the the Lord wholeheartedly? I mean, what if he calls me to do something that's hard? I understand the confusion, but I don't understand people who know him a little bit not wanting to know him more. The goodness that you have a little of understanding of not going, I would do anything. I'd take any risk to follow that. Some of you are going, well, I'm just not a risk taker. Yes, you are. Some of you took risks on the way here. Some of you were coming to an intersection and the light was not green. Okay, I'm not saying it was red, but it was not green. And you do a complex mental calculation on how long it's been yellow, how long you think it's going to be yellow, how fast do you think that guy is, and you take a risk. Hopefully it worked. Some of you took a risk when you got here because you know there is a number somewhere of donuts that you are allowed to eat, after which is not good. No scientist knows that number, but it's out there, right? And you walked in, you saw the donuts, you're like, not today, Satan. And you decided this, it was worth the risk of eating that. We all take risks and we look at the reward and we, we make calculated risks every day. There is no better risk versus reward than pursuing God wholeheartedly and hosting his presence. Some of you are very tangibly motivated. You want to know, okay, if I go after this, if I search him out, what do I get? I could not begin to fully describe what you're going to get. I want to talk about one thing, though, that comes with his presence. And it is more needed in our current way of life than ever before. Because if you haven't been paying attention, the whole world's gone a little crazy. There's this group called Mental Health America. They have been around since 1909. They are the largest community-based mental health group in the nation. And they noted between January and September of 2020, okay, 2020, last year, between January and September, they had a 93% increase of people asking for mental health than they had for the previous year. The previous year, 12 months, in the next nine months, they had 93% more. In September of 2020, the rate of people that were diagnosed of having moderate to severe anxiety who reached out to them for help, people who came to them said, I think I need help. Eight out of 10 that went to them were diagnosed with moderate to severe anxiety. Fear, anxiety, depression has exploded like a mushroom over the last 18 months. And if you are not the explosion, you are downwind from the explosion because somebody in your world is feeling it. And in the middle of that battle, in pursuing his heart, he offers peace. He speaks repeatedly in the New Testament about peace that comes with the presence of God. Philippians 4.17, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Some of you are going crazy trying to figure out the situation, and you can't find peace. Let me tell you what else you can't do. You can't figure it out. It's beyond comprehension. And he says, in those situations, if you pursue my presence, I can give you peace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at times in every way. Peace is just one of the payoffs of the risk versus reward that we get when we seek the presence of God. What is the promise that comes with being a presence person? 
It's peace beyond chaos at all times. Years ago, we did this event in uh, Florida, big arena prayer event. Took our team down there and uh, ended up at, at this kind of funky little hotel in Florida. And, and we had breakfast. That was like the, the redeeming factor of the hotel was at breakfast. And uh, we go in breakfast and you get the waffles, you get the you know, whole deal. And I'm looking for the coffee and there's a pipe that comes out of the wall with like a beer keg tap thing on it. And I said, where's the coffee? They're like, it's over there. Coffee on tap. Like, and I don't know where the pipe goes. All I know is it comes out of the wall and all day long you could refill that. Who knows when the coffee was made, but it was hot. There was something on the other wall and we all joked about it for days. You know, how was the hotel? It's got, it's got coffee on tap. It's like, it's the best thing ever. Unlimited bad coffee. We get excited about coffee on tap. The presence of God offers peace on tap if you set your heart to pursue him. Like all you want. If there was a product that would lower the tension in your home right now, and I told you about it, you would get on your phones and order it on Amazon right now. You're like, what did he call that? Let's order a bunch of it. Because there's a desire for it. And he's saying, if you pursue my presence, you're going to find it. How do we do this? Let me just give you a really couple simple, very practical tips. Some of you are going to be disappointed in the simplicity of it, and you're not going to do it. Others are going to so desperate, you'll go home and do it. It'll work. Shut the news off. Just shut the news. Well, well what, if, what if? You'll find out. Trust me. Nothing big is going to happen. If it's driving you crazy, if your blood pressure comes up when the news comes on, you can control that. Shut it off. The news is so jacked up right now that they're, what they're telling you isn't true till two or three days later anyway. Shut it off. And go and invest that time with the Lord. But I got to know what's going on so I know how to pray. You got more things to pray about than you could possibly imagine. Lack of information is not your problem. Put the phone down and grab your Bible. There is someone to tap into, and he will give you peace in a way that more information and more data never will. When we came to him, we were yanked from the ocean, drowning and saved, and some of us are content to lay there on the beach and cough, alive but not really living. I'm telling you, there is more to those who pursue hosting his presence in their home. Presence people want to do that. We believe he is worth going after and worth making the life adjustments so that we will know him better. David said, I am tired of living life alone. Let's go get the ark. Let's go get it. Presence people believe he's worth going after. Second thing, a characteristic of presence people. Presence people understand protocol. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know this about you because you're like me. You don't like being told what to do. Some of you are better at it than I am, but you just kind of don't like being told what to do. You might not be defiant in your immediate response, but there's something in you that presses back against given instruction and under pressure that is more evident than other times. You don't want to be told what to do. You want to be wooed into it. You want to be convinced. You want to be romanced into some kind of obedience, which is like your five-year-old looking at you going, I want to be wooed into obeying you. I want to be convinced. I want to go to bed. Sometimes we just need to do what we're told. 
Pursuing the presence of God includes an element of protocol, which means we do some things before we feel some things. David tried to freestyle the presence of God once before. Remember, it fell off a cart and somebody died? He felt the right things. His motivation was good when he went and got the ark the right time, but he did the wrong things, and because he didn't do the right things, there was a tragedy. When David took it upon himself to seriously pursue the presence of God, he made a decision. We're going to do this God's way this time. We're going to observe God's protocol. 2 Samuel 6.13. This is Go Get the Ark Part 2. And when those who bore the ark of God, no, no cart this time. We're going to get it. David, should we bring the cart? No, do not bring the cart. We're going to follow the rules. When they bore the ark, when he had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Do you imagine how long it takes to get there? Every six steps. One, two, three. You get six, stop, offer a sacrifice. Another six steps. (laughs) And the guys carrying the ark are going, can we take bigger steps? Like, is there a way? How can we speed this up? You really can't much. This was the way the ark was to be moved. And David said, my heart was right last time, but we didn't follow the rules. I'm going to actually obey the protocol this time, and we're going to get the presence of God in our home. 2 Samuel 6, 19 says, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, and inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Jesus accepts you as you are, okay? But in knowing that, sometimes there is a casual spirit that comes upon us that leads us to believe that he always interacts with us on our own terms. He meets us where we are, but to host him in our life or to walk with him takes some preparation and activity on our part. If you are drifting in and out of fellowship, of church, or even out of your own quiet time, you're thinking, I'm not really feeling the Lord right now. Sometimes you have to do things before you feel things. Just real simple protocol. There's a couple of things you need to do if you're going to host the presence of the Lord. Dedicate time to that purpose. Randy, I'm busy. I get it. You and everybody else. But set time aside for this. There's a weird thing that happens to our brain because we know that God is always there, that we think we will always have an opportunity to go to him. God's time is unlimited, but you know what? Your clock is ticking. And you are going to get to the end of your days and you're going to look back. You're not going to regret having spent a moment with him. Dedicate time. It's the only way that you ever... You have to do these things if you're ever going to feel these things. When you go before Him, do it with honor. Take a moment. Quiet your heart. Recognize, yes, you're meeting with a friend. You're also meeting with the King of the universe. It's a sober moment. Come ready to talk, but come ready to listen. Some of you, you struggle with prayer because, you know, I, I sit down with him and I, I, I say everything I know what to say in 10 minutes and I'm done. It's a relationship. Imagine that with your spouse. If you come to me and say, I don't know why we're communicating. I sit and I tell her everything I have to say in 10 minutes. You talk and you listen. There's a protocol to this. There's a way to come before him and to host his presence. Presence people believe he's worth pursuing. They believe and comprehend and adhere to protocol. Third thing is presence people worship with extravagance. 
You could have been 100 places this morning, much more easily than have been here. You chose this. Now, that's significant, but showing up is not participation. And sometimes we miss the opportunity to participate, and that happens primarily during worship. People who are really presence people and want to host the presence of God do not miss an opportunity to worship with extravagance. 2 Samuel 6, 14 and 15. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. Don't get caught up in the ephod. We'll talk about that in a minute. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. David knew that the last time when they lost the ark or they lost the presence of the Lord was very much attached to the fact that they took it for granted. They didn't weigh the the importance of what they were doing, and that casual approach cost them lives and cost them his presence. They had been around the idea of the presence of God so long, they began to assume that they were who they were, and they did what they did based on their own being, and they did not need to honor him in that way. Yes, they had the presence of God, but you know they were kind of big stuff themselves, or so they thought. That idea of being so full of themselves contributed to the loss of the presence of God. Sometimes, Joni Mitchell had it right, you do not know what you had until it's gone. All over the U.S. right now, in college dorms, there are kids who miss mom's advice. They didn't want to take it last week, but now she's there and they miss mom. Inmates all over the U.S. in prisons are sitting there talking about what they will eat when they get released. Soldiers are sitting in foxholes talking about who they want to see when they get home. I can imagine David, before they go get the ark, sitting around the fire saying, so help me, if I ever get the presence back, I will never take it for granted again. I will never approach it casually again. I won't turn my back on him. I will pour out my affection in the most public way possible because I have lived without his presence and I don't ever want to do it again. Extravagant worship always captured the heart of the Lord. And what is extravagant to us is the closest thing that he even sees to being appropriate. There's a story, of course, in Mark 12, where someone approaches him and talks about what it means to be saved. And as he's answering this person, they say, you know, if we surrender everything to you and, and follow you, and he says, yeah, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting close. You're getting close. There are times I think he looks at our worship, our most extravagant, and he goes, you're getting close. I'm worth more than that, but you're getting close. It's the sort of thing that grabbed his attention in Matthew 26, when Mary is pouring out expensive perfume on his feet, and people criticize her. By the way, the person who criticized her, we find in another passage, the one who says, could have been given to the poor, that was Judas. He wasn't going to give the money to the poor. Oftentimes, when you are sacrificing greatly to the Lord, and somebody looks at you and says, that could have been done in a different way, they wouldn't have done it any different if you gave them the opportunity to do it. And in regard to that, you can almost hear the Lord saying, she's pouring this out on me. She's getting close. She's getting close. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, they're going to talk about this woman. They're going to remember her name because of what she's poured out on me. 
Never let the comfort of the crowd determine your level of participation in worship. Okay? Never look around and go, okay, is this a hand-raising crowd? Is this an extravagant crowd? Because if they are, I'm there. Never let the crowd determine the level of worship that you participate in. There's a reason people don't like committees. Because committees only move forward at the rate at which the most frightened person at the table is willing to go. That's just how it works. Okay, who's most scared? You're in charge. That's like coming into worship and saying, who is the most reserved and freaked out? You're going to chart the course for everyone. No, 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 no. You come in and you say, I, before the Lord, am going to worship, and it is my desire of my heart that he would look down at my pitiful little offering of worship, and he would say, you're getting close. That's not fully, you know, because you couldn't possibly fully understand what I'm worth, but you are beginning to reflect that you've got some sort of idea. You can't set the standard for the room, neither is it your responsibility, but you set it for yourself, and in doing so, you may boldly lead others to worship. Presence people know the presence is worth going after. They know there's a protocol. They understand that we worship with extravagance in the presence of God. Number four, presence people rattle the establishment. People who really want to host the presence of God have a tendency to rattle cages. The establishment can be viewed as those who have a romantic view of the past and the way things were, and they always think it was better, and they're always trying to go back to that. Presence people go, yeah, I don't really want to go back. I want to go forward. And they are a reminder that sometimes the good old days were not the gilded age that we remember them. Sometimes people's idea of the good old days are just our preferred mode of dysfunction. 2 Samuel 6.16 And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, if you don't know the whole, whole track record here, this is now David's wife. Saul's daughter, former king. So she grew up in the palace. She's a princess. Got a little baggage, a few daddy issues. And now she's married to David. David comes in. And she despises him. Now, a lot of people say that it's because of his nakedness. He's only wearing a tunic. And that's, that doesn't hold up very well if you actually study it, study the whole passage. All right? He was not out there with no clothes on. We don't exactly know what the tunic looked like, but it's something about saying he was only wearing a tunic. Sounds, you know, a little risque. What's a tunic? We don't know. But it's all he had on. There are entire sermons built around this idea. But that's not what Michal was, was embarrassed about at all. The tunic that David is wearing is actually what is being worn by the priests and the Levites. In uh, 1 Chronicles 15, it talks about the fact that David was wearing what everybody else was wearing. And there's nothing to lead us to believe, other except of our freaked out imagination, that he was dancing in a suggestive manner or doing any of the things that we think of that she might have been offended by. He's probably doing kind of this, this traditional Jewish dance in a land. It was kind of a Jewish, I can't, I can't. Kind of a country Jewish line dance, okay? That's what I'm going for. Kind of the kosher electric slide. I don't know. But it's not, this, it's not what we've kind of thought of. Is he's only wearing a tunic. Oh my, what's going on? No, no. So why is she so upset? 
Remember who daddy was? Remember Saul? Regal, dignified, completely full of himself. That was her dad. Her father took it upon himself to act as a priest one time. Her father blatantly disobeyed a command from the Lord. Her father was consumed with jealousy. Rather than celebrate David's victories like his son did, he tried to kill him. Rather than repent of his wrongs and seek the help of the Lord, Saul sought guidance elsewhere with a witch. And she's thinking, my husband, the king, is out there dancing with the commoners. My father would have never done that. Completely forgetting one little detail. Your daddy's not king anymore. And there's a reason your daddy's not king. 1 Samuel 6.13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When I was, I was typing out my notes, I thought I, miss, I, thought I made a mistake. It must, I must say rest upon him. No, it actually said that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What happens in the next verse? In verse 14, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Congratulations, lady. You're right. Your father would have never done this. The Spirit of the Lord left him. Rested on David. Your father would have never worshipped with such extravagance. He would have remained regal and died without the presence of the Lord. Presence people worship extravagantly. Pious people hold their hearts in reserve, like Saul did. David's humble approach is a prophetic witness against the days of Saul that says, we're not going back to that way. We were powerful as a people, but we lacked the presence of God. David's wife preferred the things the way they were. I am ready and willing to let go of anything that stops the Lord from moving in power in our lives, including dignity, including others' opinions. And Michael struggled with this. She's like, you're not doing it the way Daddy would have done it. Yeah, well, Daddy actually lost the presence of God. So maybe there's a different way of doing it. Fifth thing, presence people choose relationships with God over reputation. Now, let's be clear. You're not always in a position of being torn between relationships with the people around you and serving God. God, if your wife wants you to get up and go to work on Monday morning, chances are the Lord wants you to get up and go to work. It's, you can't look at her and say, do not touch God's anointed, okay? There are oftentimes the, the people who love you want the same thing that the Lord wants. But there are times when you need to make a choice when people's expectations do not coincide with the Lord's, and the choice is, who am I going to make happy? David finds himself in a position like that. He is torn between the approval of the Lord and the approval of this woman. And the truth is, she probably liked David. She certainly liked the palace. She liked hanging out, going on long, quiet walks on the beach. They were fairly compatible except for this one thing, and he could not endure the fact or she could not endure the fact that he valued the presence of God more than her input. And in order to make this harder, she will not quietly dissent. She's vocal and she's angry at David, and he knows if she doesn't, he doesn't side with her, she is not going to quit talking. Second Samuel 
6.20 to 23. It says, and David returned to bless his household. So he gets the ark in the tent that he built for it because nobody really wanted to share a tent with the ark. And he says, we got the tent in the ark. He fed all the people, sacrificed, got all, all right, goes home, washes up, walks into his house. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. This is pure sarcasm. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as the one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Some of you going, I thought that the ephod, no, no. She is not saying he was vulgar. She was saying he made himself vulnerable. He acted as a commoner. His uncovering meant he revealed himself to be a normal man, not some godlike character. That was a statement about humility. She was afraid everybody's going to see you for what you really are. David was afraid they wouldn't see him for what he really was. He didn't want to be a king on a pedestal. He wanted to be a worshiper in the house of the Lord. The divide of that is part of the reason the spirit lifted from her father and rested on him. And at some point, he's had enough. And he looks at, it and sa- looks at her and says, it was before the Lord. I wasn't dancing before you, lady. It was before the Lord. I wasn't dancing for the servant girls or for the soldiers or for anybody who was watching. Here's how you become a presence person. You walk into worship and you determine what you do in this place is before the Lord. It isn't before anybody else. What might people think? Why do you care? If you are distracted watching people in worship, you are more like Saul's daughter than David anyway. And she is not the example to follow in the story. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself more contemptible than this, and I will be more abased in your eyes. He's saying, if this is the measurement of greatness, guess what, buttercup? It's going to get worse. It is not going to get better. You don't read buttercup in the English translation. You have to go back to the original language. He goes on to say, I will make myself more contemptible of this, and I will be abased in their eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. He's like, I want to lead those people into the presence of God. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. David may have started out a shepherd, but he captured God's heart. And he was the greatest ruler that Israel had on the face of the earth. So much that God said one of his descendants will always sit on the throne. But Michael, her family lineage runs out because she struggled with this idea of what it took to be a person of his presence. I want to ask if Rachel would come back up as we get ready to close. I realize we're, we're tied up against the clock right now and we're, we're going to honor your time. So I, as I talk about this, I just want to talk about going forward, okay? I want to be presence people. I want to be people whose primary concern when we gather is, do we host Jesus here? Do we make a place and do we regard him in such a way 
that he feels comfortable here? Does Jesus look down and say, oh, they're getting close. It's not, exa- it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but look what they're doing. How they're responding to me, they're getting close. And in doing so, they're operating like kings and they're searching out the deep things of God because of how they position their heart in regarding me. Stand with me. We're just going to take just a couple of minutes. This is an opportunity to treat this as a clinic for a moment, okay? This isn't just closing worship. This is a clinic. Just take a moment in this season and begin to welcome his presence. Father, we ask you to come right now. Lord, will you come? Can we host your presence in this place? We're hungry for you. We want to be presence people. 